Today on Against the Grain, a women's history-themed program examining Bettina Aptiker's turn toward feminism, Italian-American women anarchists, and a 1979 Iranian women's uprising. I'm CS. All that and more coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Women's History Month isn't over yet, and Against the Grain's 20th anniversary year recently began, a year during which I will, from time to time, present curated and cherished selections from our archives. Today, we have for you three penetrating voices and perspectives on radical women in history, how they thought, what they did, how they approached and confronted the world around them. Later this hour, you'll hear the story of Italian-American anarchist women in New York City in the early 20th century. You'll also learn about a little-known Iranian women's uprising amidst the revolutionary ferment that swept that country in 1979. We begin with Bettina Aptaker, who wrote a fascinating memoir titled Intimate Politics, How I Grew Up Red, fought for free speech, and became a feminist rebel. When Bettina, now a professor emerita of feminist studies at UC Santa Cruz, joined this program in 2007, we talked about a range of things, including her prominent role in the free speech movement and the influence and impact of her father, the historian and U.S. Communist Party leader Herbert Aptaker. But here I led her in a different direction. Angela Davis plays a big role in your life and in this book. Yes. She caught the attention of government officials in the 1960s with her support of the Black Panther Party, with her membership in the U.S. Communist Party, um, with her opposition to the Vietnam War. And you write about the time in which the UC Regents tried to have her fired from her position as a lecturer at uh, UCLA as a philosophy lecturer. It failed that time. They tried again later on. Let's get to her arrest and trial. You were a big part of defending her. Why was she arrested by FBI agents in October of 1970? In uh, August 7th, 1970, a young man named Jonathan Jackson who was 17 years old, walked into a courtroom in Marin County. He was the younger brother of George Jackson, who had been incarcerated for many years at Soledad Prison. Jonathan walked into this courtroom, and he was heavily armed, and he took it over. And uh, he took a judge and three jurors and the district attorney. He was an assistant district attorney as hostages. Prisoners James McLean, Rochelle McGee and Willie Christmas went with him. And uh, they left the courtroom and went outside. took them a long time to leave the courtroom and so forth. And uh, they got into a van that Jonathan had rented. Jonathan got behind the wheel and they started to drive. Sheriff's deputies in Marin County held their fire because of the hostages, but San Quentin prison guards have orders to shoot, to kill, escaping prisoners regardless of hostages. So the prison guards opened fire. I believe it was about nine seconds of gunfire. There's a recording of it. Uh, And in that nine seconds, Jonathan was killed, Willie Christmas was killed, James McLean was killed, the judge was killed, the district attorney was seriously wounded, and one juror was wounded, but not very much, not badly, and Rochelle McGee was very, very seriously wounded. So that's the background. Those are the events that took place. The FBI, or the local authorities, began releasing a story before they'd done much of anything saying that there was a a woman involved, 
that they thought there was a conspiracy and that some woman was involved and so forth, and that the purpose of Jonathan's action had been to free the Soledad brothers, to free his brother, George Jackson, and uh, John Clouchette, and uh, Fleeta Drumgo were the three Soledad brothers. And they were on trial. They were going to be going on trial for the alleged murder of a guard at Soledad, which, um, you know, subsequently they were found not guilty, although George had been assassinated in August of 1971 in San Quentin. Um, And Angela disappeared as the hunt for this mysterious woman heated up. And then it was uh, released, a grand, grand jury indicted her because uh, several of the guns that Jonathan had were registered in her name. Now, they were legally registered in her name. They had been purchased a long time before in Los Angeles. But uh, they put her on the 10 most wanted list, the FBI did. It was a veritable reign of terror in the black community because anybody who looked anything like her, with this sort of general description of a tall, light-complected black woman with a space between her teeth and a large afro, I mean, that was the so-called description that they had. And many, many women were harassed, you know, in any event, uh, that's the background of the case. And uh, she was eventually, as you said, apprehended in New York by the FBI in October of 1970. And what did you decide to do to aid her defense? I had known Angela since childhood. We had been involved in a socialist youth organization together when we were teenagers. But we knew each other from the time we were about seven or eight years old because our parents were friends. And had many mutual friends. So I felt very deeply about Angela. And I'd been involved in the fight to save her job at UCLA earlier. Uh, so I just dropped everything I was doing. And uh, my husband and I had already talked about it. We had a little boy, my son Joshua, who was just turning three. And um, I dropped everything and I flew back to New York. And I met with Angela at the women's, New York Women's House of Detention. And became an intimate part of the defense Uh, So from that moment until the acquittal, she was found not guilty of all charges in June of 1972. So it was a long ordeal, and we mounted a tremendous, what I think of as an amazing mass movement in her defense. And the black community was, uh, I don't want to say unanimous because no community is unanimous, but certainly the overwhelming majority of African-American people in this country supported her. I think it's one of the reasons that the FBI didn't dare kill her at the time they arrested her which I think would have been their preference. And why was the U.S. Communist Party, and you were still then part of the National Committee of the U.S. Communist Party, why was it divided over Angela Davis's case? The Communist Party was very divided on the question of armed self-defense. A long-standing debate, not only in the Communist Party, but in the Black Panther Party and in SNCC going back to the mid-60s. Uh, because of the attacks that were being sustained by the community all over the place. And remember, by 72, Fred Hampton had been murdered. Mar- um, there's there's another person. Mark Clark. Mark no, Clark. Okay. John Huggins had been killed in Los Angeles. I mean, there were terrible killings of people. The question of the use of guns and armed self-defense was in that context. There were some people in the Communist Party who felt that Jonathan's action was... Uh, what they call left adventuresome, Le- you know... Um, adventurism? Adventurism, mm-hmm. yeah. And couldn't be defended, couldn't be supported. And they wanted to separate Angela from it altogether. There were some people in the National Committee who had never heard of the Soledad brothers and were making these wild statements, you know, that Angela Davis had nothing to do with the Soledad brothers, and so, which wasn't true, you know. She did. She had a lot to do with building their defense. That wasn't the point. So there's a lot of ignorance and fear. There was a lot of fear that the Communist Party would come under a certain kind of persecution like it did in the 50s uh, if it had anything to do with acknowledging uh, what I thought of as uh, tremendous courage of this young man. It was a terrible tragedy. Here's this young man with this courage and then this tragedy mm-hmm. of death, you know. But it's very much in the tradition of a certain uh, form of, of uh, African-American resistance. You know, you can't deny that this form of resistance has existed before. doesn't mean that you advocate it, but that you acknowledge it and you acknowledge the courage of it. So that was the divide. It never really was resolved in the, in the National Committee. I mean, there was this huge debate. And then basically everybody said, well, we're going to support Angela <laughs> and did. And the Communist Party was extremely important in developing the solidity and the international 
quality of her defense, which took on enormous. I mean, she became an icon of revolutionary fervor all over the world, and free Angela in every imaginable language all over the world, as well as in the United States. So we started with this, uh, the president of the United States, the congratulating the FBI, was Nixon was president, on the capture of the dangerous terrorist Angela Davis. That's what he said, and that's what the New York Times said in an editorial. So we started from there to building a mass movement that secured her release on bail, which had been denied. Uh, we finally secured her release on bail five days before the trial started. We're joined by Bettina Aptaker in studio. She is a professor of feminist studies at the University of California, Santa Cruz. We're talking about her book, Intimate Politics, How I Grew Up Red, Fought for Free Speech, and Became a Feminist Rebel. It's published by Seal Press. After Davis's acquittal, you decided to enter grad school. You loved grad school. People can read about that in your book, Intimate Politics. Um, You told me earlier that you were not a feminist when you were an undergrad. You did not kind of resonate with many of uh, feminist ideals or at least with the feminist messages. And you were still, I guess, to some degree hostile to the women's movement while you were in grad school for a time. Why were you hostile and what changed in your mind such that you began to open up to the women's movement? Mm-hmm. It's an excellent question. And uh, well, there's two reasons I was hostile to the women's movement. And they, these are not in order of priority. One reason was that the Communist Party had a very negative attitude towards the women's liberation movement of the late 60s, considering it to be a white middle-class petite bourgeois is the epithet that was usually used, (laughs) movement that uh, didn't really represent the interests of working class women and women of color. And that's not without merit. That statement is not without merit. But there was a sort of dismissal of issues of domestic violence, of violent rape and violence against women, a dismissal of issues around abortions, and an assertion of racial and economic equality. I guess in the memoir, what I try to explain is my consciousness as it evolved was that those two things are not contradictory, that the so-called personal is also political and and so on. But the real reason I was hostile to the women's movement, I mean, that's the political reason. The real emotional reason was that I knew I was a lesbian. And I describe in the book my first affair with a woman, which was coincided a few months after my marriage, you know, when I felt safe in the marriage, see, I had this affair with a woman. I tell the whole thing, you know, it's, it's the truth. It's what happened. Mm-hmm. But the point about this is, is that I didn't know what the connection was between lesbian and feminist. I didn't know what the connection was, but I knew there was a connection. And I was so closeted and so afraid of being outed in any kind of way that I, that was the emotional uh, reason. Now, Angela really taught me my first introduction to feminism when she was asked to give a paper uh, with Juliet Mitchell, who was uh, probably the, one of the leading British feminist socialists of that time period, late 60s, wrote a book called The Longest Revolution. And she and Angela were supposed to be on a panel at the American Philosophical Association convention in New York. Of course, Angela was in prison. So Angela wrote the paper and asked me to present it. And in order for me to present any part of it, she had to teach it to me. So that's what we did. So we sat on the floor outside her cell with all these books, and she taught it to me. Emotionally, the most important thing was that I saw that she took it seriously. She was very critical of the white feminists. She she was very critical of the racism she saw in the movement, but she took it seriously. And she related it back to Marxist writings, the philosophical notebooks of Marx, issues of alienation, and so forth. And a lot of the ideas about slavery, U.S. slavery, and black women are embedded in that essay that she wrote then, which is came out in a different form in The Black Scholar in December 1971, which is called The Role of Black Women in the Community of Slaves. So that's where I saw, well, you know, this is actually has some merit. And when I went back to graduate school, I started studying African-American women's history 
you could see just what's going on emotionally, right? You know, because that African-American component was safe to me. And then I was focusing on women. And a lot of those women were feminists, you know, back in the turn of the 20th century. Anna Julia Cooper, for example, I mean, they, they may not have had the language feminist, but Anna Julia Cooper was a pretty sharp feminist, <laughs> you know, and Mary Church Terrell and Ida B. Wells were no slouches either. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so there I was, you see, yes. uh, getting into it. Yes. And that's really, it was an intellectual turning point. And the Communist Party leadership had a lot of problems with at least one chapter in a book you were writing about yes. domestic labor, about the labor of black women within the home and elsewhere. And this, of course, led up to your resignation from the Communist Party in October 1981. Why then, and what were your reasons then? Yes. The book was called Woman's Legacy, Essays on Race, Sex, and Class in American History. I had already published the book on Angela's trial with international publishers, which was the Communist Party's house. They asked me to do a book on women, vague, but they had nothing. So I took the research that I was doing uh, for my master's thesis, and I used it as the basis for a collection of essays. One of the essays, as you say, was on domestic labor. What I was trying to do theoretically was talk about women's domestic work as being part of the production of surplus value. You know, because it, it had always been so marginalized, you see, in that it's the reproduction of the working class. And I was using Engels and I was using Marx and, you know, I mean, that was part of the debates of what was going on at the time. And I was using the experience of African-American women, the overwhelming majority of whom had been domestic workers, right, in the 30s and 40s. That was the work they could get by trying to point out that when they were domestic workers, they were subject to terrible forms of sexual harassment. And why, right? Because they were not only selling their labor power, they were selling themselves because of the legacy of slavery. Mm. So I was trying to make these all these connections. I'm abbreviating it now, but that's intellectually, that's what I was after. In essence, a way of synthesizing or bringing together Marxism and feminism, that's right. correct? Yeah. That's correct. Mm-hmm. That's just what I was after. So uh, the uh, Communist Party uh, had the National Women's Commission, uh, had serious objections to the book, said that it couldn't be published in that form. I tried to negotiate. I tried to change it. Ultimately, what it came down to was that I had to take out the entire chapter on domestic labor for them to publish the book. And I said, I can't do that. This was what democratic socialism was all about. This is what all the debates had been about. So they didn't publish the book. And I was very fortunate in getting University of Massachusetts to publish the book. And it's still used as a text in, in some classes. In any event, after they, didn't, they wouldn't publish the book and that whole debacle of how that happened, the way I was lied to, I couldn't see how I could stay in the Communist Party. It, it just didn't seem feasible. There is a sort of hysterical thing, I mean, laugh, laughing thing, not hysterical that way, um, which is that I wanted to resign from the party (laughs) on principle of this and not having anything to do with some crisis with the Soviet Union (laughs) or Uh some international event that had taken place. So I was trying to find the timing (laughs) when I could resign where the integrity of the issue would stand on its own. And I also wanted to resign from the party without causing a lot of hostility. I wasn't interested in fighting with people or anything. Uh, And I have to say that I think the other objection that was subterranean, unspoken, was that I was already living my life as a lesbian. And the homophobia in the party was very great, especially in New York, not on the West Coast, but in New York, very, very great. And so I think that that was another big factor. Although, as I said, it was never explicitly stated, but I think that it was a big factor. Bettina Abtaker, speaking with me in August 2007 about her book, Intimate Politics, How I Grew Up Red, Fought for Free Speech, and Became a Feminist Rebel. Bettina's other books include The Morning Breaks, The Trial of Angela Davis, and very recently, Communists in Closets, Queering the History, 1930s to 1990s. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. We continue today's foray into radical women's history with insights galore from Jennifer Guglielmo, author of Living the Revolution, 
Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City, 1880-1945. When Jennifer, a Smith College-based historian, joined this program in June 2015, we talked about the mass migration of Italians to the U.S. from 1870 through the 1920s, about most of them finding only low-waged employment performing grueling, often dangerous tasks, about Italian-American women working mostly in the garment and textile industries, and about Southern Italians being viewed as racially inferior to other Europeans. Here is a portion of that interview. Let's talk about how Italian immigrants organized themselves or helped themselves, helped their communities in the U.S. You write that the Mutual Aid Society became these immigrants' primary method of self-help and survival in the U.S. Tell us about this. Yeah, the Mutual Aid Society, as a historian, is, to me, one of the most interesting manifestations in American history that is so confined to working-class history. You don't really see people talking about the Mutual Aid Societies and dominant narratives of American history, and it's a real shame because they were absolutely fundamental to the ways in which working-class folks everyday folks, you know, who were, you know, working class folks were the vast majority of people in the United States. And I think one could still argue that they still are, although the notion of what constitutes the working class has changed. Um, But at the beginning of the 20th century, working class people, you know, there wasn't a, a system of welfare or state agencies to assist people in any way. And so people had to provide those services for themselves as best they could. And the Mutual Aid Society emerged as a way for working class folks to pool their resources and to provide for themselves. So they provided things like death benefits and insurance and and other kinds of forms of of mutual aid and support loans to help people start businesses and they would they became kind of the absolute core of almost every working class community in the United States and it's fascinating to study them i think whether it's for mexican americans or chinese immigrants or african americans or italians and jews um, any group really uh, this is really the heart sometimes they're called benevolent aid societies and so these Folks pulled their resources, came together, and then these mutual aid societies went in multiple different directions. Some of them took on religious kind of and spiritual kind of purposes. Some of them became patriotic and nationalistic. And some of them became a place for folks to organize around issues of labor. And also not only labor organizations, but also self-help. Like some of these mutual aid societies, especially within the African-American tradition, developed into banks and supermarkets and schools. So a great deal of institution building grew out of them for for many communities. And um, for Italians, like for many other folks, they provided a way into the labor movement. It was the way that folks came together and shared what they were struggling with in their jobs and began to strategize about how to change and affect their working conditions. And then, of course, that led them to connect with other workers and to begin to read and and think in larger terms about their struggles they were facing. So then they, you know, many of these uh, mutual aid societies began to establish uh, libraries and study groups and places for folks to educate themselves. They founded newspapers to circulate their ideas. They were really at the heart. They're really at the heart of every working class community. And so to study Italian immigrant political cultures, The Mutual Aid Society is really the building block. It's really the heart of the political culture in this period. Well, how active were women specifically in the Mutual Aid Societies? And I'm thinking specifically of more of the the politically radical types of these societies. The socialist and anarchist mutual aid societies became, you know, the most popular mutual aid societies among Italian immigrants. And the women were, they participated in them, I discovered, in ways that were very particular in the sense that it was a very gendered understanding of how you, you the role that you played in these circles. The men, for the most part, were the ones who attended the meetings weekly. They were the ones who established the newspapers. They were the ones who built the bookstores. And so they were really the ones who were defining the culture in that way. And the women were 
participating in aspects of the mutual aid society. They were particularly involved in the theater groups that emerged out of these societies in forming theater groups and in not only performing locally, but touring also throughout their various regions, you know, in the Northeast. They go from community, radical community to radical community and would perform. Women were very much a part of that. Uh, the women, of course, at the big festivals, you know, there were several festivals that these mutual aid societies would throw every uh, year. The women were, of course, cooking all the food. They were, you know, helping to establish, you know, create the setting, you know performing musically as well as as poetry, things like that. But they weren't attending the meetings regularly, and they felt in many occasions very marginalized by the larger political culture and and by their mutual aid society groups too. So some of them formed their own groups within a kind of female auxiliaries within these groups to create a space for women to come together. In um, Patterson and in New York City, women formed what was called an anarchist women's group, a Grupo Femenile de Propaganda, in order to create a space for women because they felt like they were not being heard or taken seriously within this world. So you have these women breaking off, you know, to some degree and forming their own groups. And I want to ask you about the kinds of things these particular radical women advocated for. And and maybe we could start here because we hear a lot about feminism at, at this time. And, you know, often the portrait is um, middle class or upper class white women in the U.S. So did these particular Italian women, did they seek alliances with what might have been called mainstream feminism, or maybe that's a term we use now, but what is now called mainstream feminism back then? Yeah. I, part of one of the things I do as a, as a historian, as a professor of women's history, is to expand the notion of, of feminist activity in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, because the the kind of gravitational pull in the center of this history has been so defined by white middle class women's histories around suffrage and progressive era activism. And it's really, I think, contributed to a certain level of invisibility, especially about what working class women, immigrant women, and women of color as a whole were up to in this period, some of whom called themselves feminists, some of whom did not, but were decidedly engaged in kind of an emancipatory politics with their whole communities and and were very mindful of what that meant for women in particular. So part of what I'm doing with my work is trying to make visible this world of, of transnational, multilingual, radical feminism that was very much a part of the turn of the century and that historians have been documenting for several decades, but that still has yet to make it really into mainstream understandings of feminism. Um, And to answer your question more directly, Italian women were very aware of what Italian, the Italian women I'm writing about, the kind of working class immigrant women in the U.S., were very aware of what they called bourgeois feminisms. They read them. They heard about them they they attended talks they um they read the pamphlets they you know it was a part they were engaging with that political culture but they saw themselves as very distinct you know they did not seek inclusion in the nation state they sought to abolish the nation state so you know for the women i'm writing about right who were anarchists and socialists these were the where you find feminism in Italian immigrant communities was in these radical movements. And their feminism was, again, they used the word actually, they used the word feminism, but they often used the word emancipation because what they sought was not to join power, but to completely disrupt it and to completely reimagine the world. You know, they, they uh, critiqued the state, they critiqued the church, they critiqued capital, and that was the change they were interested in. Did these Italian immigrant women, did they rely for their activism on the established trade union movement? At first, they did not because the established trade union movement was formed primarily by and for skilled white workers. So they relied on the revolutionary working class movement that that took shape in the early 20th century through the mutual aid societies and then 
became a much more kind of larger national force through the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, which was established in 1905. That was the first, I could say, more formalized structure, if you Mm -hmm. could even call it that. But it was a more formalized uh, movement that they imagined themselves as a, a part of. But the formal trade union movement Italian women really didn't join that movement until the 1930s and 40s, till the Great Depression, until the mass-based worker movements of that period really transformed the trade union movement and and um, brought many more women into that movement and you know many more people of color and completely transformed the union culture as a result. That's Jennifer Guglielmo, Associate Professor of History at Smith College. We'll return to more of our conversation about Jennifer's book, Living the Revolution, after this short music break. Please stay tuned. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. In 2015, Jennifer Guglielmo joined me to discuss some of the research that went into her book, Living the Revolution, Italian Women's Resistance and Radicalism in New York City, 1880-1945. We return now to more of that conversation. How about the, the labor strikes of the early 1900s? How prominent and important were the contributions of Italian immigrant women to those strikes, to that militancy? Yeah, I think that they begin to see that if they want to organize in their in their fields, which in the Northeast were primarily garment work and textile work, that the best route for that, especially once the IWW was so targeted by the U.S. government. Uh, in the first Red Scare of the world of World War One, the IWW is, it is really crushed by the U.S. federal government that seeks to, to undermine its efforts in every imaginable way because it's becoming more and more popular and powerful. And so offices are being raided, people are being rounded up and detained and thrown into prison. And so the IWW really struggles um, by the 1920s. And Throughout the 19-teens as well, the garment unions and the textile unions have some presence and are beginning to shift and change and admit their lowest wage workers into their unions out of necessity. So the International Ladies Garment Workers, for example, that union, which was really rooted in Jewish radical culture at the early 20th century, by the 19-teens, they realized that they have to begin to mobilize Italians if they want to remain effective because Italians are just pouring into the industry and the lowest sectors. And so the first, the 1909 strike that most people who've studied women's history hear about, the uprising of 20,000, that's a strike that's primarily Jewish women. Italian women are the strike breakers in that strike. And as a result, folks take a real close look at what needs to happen for the future. So by the 1913 strike, Italian women are much more present. They are now organizers. They're bringing other Italian women into the union. And so 1919 is another big strike for that uh, union. And that brings tens of thousands of Italian women and men into the union. Of course, all unions suffer as a result of corporate capitalist approaches to trying to deal with unions so that union membership tended to decline in the 20s and also as a result of the of the uh, red scare but by the 30s you know these unions emerge again so powerfully as a result of the great depression so 
but the foundations for Italian women's participation in the 30s are definitely laid earlier. And a lot of the organizers who were key to the 1913 and 1919 strikes come directly out of the radical subculture. They are the ones who are in the the anarchist and socialist um, mutual aid societies who have been organizing for, you know, for much of their lives. And they become the key folks who help to, to mobilize those unions in the 19-teens. So, Jennifer, to what extent did these, these women in these radical organizations, these organizations formed by themselves, to what extent did they try to call attention to what we now might call the the 1% and the degree to which elites lived off the labor of of the common worker that was abs- that was the heart of, of what they were attempting to to do is to make visible the incredibly difficult and demeaning and dehumanizing conditions under which they worked and the ways in which they were producing and other working class people were producing enormous wealth that they never had access to. You know, you can imagine, these are folks who went into the factory 12 hours a day, often six or seven days a week. They were working in conditions that were, you know, poorly lit, badly ventilated, extremely dangerous. There weren't a lot of labor codes that governed their working conditions, especially in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, and certainly at the end of the 19th century. And they were very low paid, and workers were, or employers rather, were always trying to find ways to pay them less and less and less. So they had a sense of themselves as part of this kind of army of working people who had to, in order to topple this emerging, as they saw it, kind of industrial capitalist world, had to unite and had to come together. You know, and they, the industrial workers of the world, their famous motto was, you know, workers of the world unite, the sense that that was the only way that they could even begin to challenge the wealth of capital and its power was by coming together with one another and calling it out, really calling it out for what it was, you know, a system of profit that required their subjugation. And one of these radical immigrant women wrote, why does the pleasure of some have to create misery for many? What about nationalism? To what extent did these women, these anarchists, single out nationalism as the problem? Uh, nationalism was side by side with capitalism as a system of oppression that governed their lives. They they believed that nationalism was created to preserve the power of capital and argued that the boundaries were were arbitrary when it came to people and the ways in which people needed to move through space organically and that these boundaries were erected in order to produce profit, in order to justify the marginalized inclusion of some people, right? You can grant some people citizenship status and deny it others. And those who are denied citizenship status, you know, produce, create a low-wage underclass that will produce even more profit. So they were very aware that, that nationalism was actually a tool of capitalism and was one of the primary ways that capital created a structure that enabled it to perpetuate itself. And does this play into your argument, which you make very forcefully in the talk you gave at the North American Anarchist Studies Conference, that these women had a distinctly and deeply transnational focus? Yes. Their whole identity and their sense of themselves was very transnational, as it is for migrants today. You know, these are folks who were born in another land who, you know, if we think about it from the women's perspective, the men and their families migrated maybe for a decade before they too migrated. So there was time where the family was, you know, moving across national boundaries and and so their sense of themselves was transnational even before they ever left Italy because of how much migration shaped their communities. And then once they are migrating, they are working in settings that are with other migrants from all over the world. So their transnational sense only expands as they migrate themselves and meet people who themselves have transnational identities. And and that formed, you know, the workers of the world unite was ultimately a transnational kind of imperative, right? The need for workers of the world to come together to not 
locate themselves within national boundaries, but to transcend them in order to, to really challenge global capitalism. You write that most of the women you were studying, you are studying, were inspired by an anarcho-syndicalist named Enrico Malatesta. What was the thrust of his critique? Enrico Malatesta was an anarchist who, like most anarchists of, at this time, you know, had this critique of capitalism and nationalism and of the church and of religion, that these are intertwined systems of power that had to be collectively kind of toppled and challenged and critiqued. He also believed in the mobilization of workers through through industrial unions. Uh, although many anarchists were very skeptical about unions that they could also become bureaucratic and hierarchical, and of course, you know, they were right in that that some anarchists like Malatesta still believed that some level of organization was critical in order for revolution to occur, that people had to come together in small groups. And that's where the mutual aid societies were really key here, is that that kind of formal organization could serve a purpose. And uh, so he spoke to that strand of anarchism that appealed to to many Italians that were, of course, organizing in the United States in industrial unions at the time. Emma Goldman, the anarchist firebrand, is famous for, among other things, her advocacy of, of free love. Did they advocate that? They did. Anarchists absolutely advocated for free love. They believed that love, like the heart, should be unhindered, that it shouldn't be constrained by religion and the church or by the state. They wanted to create a context in which love could flow more readily between people and between communities. And and so most people, I think, limit their understanding of free love to, to that they believe they could have multiple partners. But that was, you know, the anarchists debated everything. You know, there was no fully agreed upon set of principles except maybe the basic core principles. But they, you know, they talked endlessly about what free love meant. And to some, it meant the ability to have multiple partners. To some, it meant that you could form a relationship with someone, a monogamous relationship. And then when that ceased to be a healthy place for the both of you and when you, you know, it was no longer teaching you or giving you what you, what, what you felt was in your best interest, that you would then move on and form another relationship they they wanted to create a world in which people could kind of organically come together and move apart without there being stigma or, you know, grave social consequences. That's Jennifer Guglielmo, an historian specializing in the histories of labor, race, women, migration, and revolutionary social movements in the late 19th and 20th century United States. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Manije Moradian is Assistant Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College. You may have heard my recent interview with Manije about her book, This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. But we didn't have time to present one portion of the conversation about what she sees as a significant event in Iranian history. Here is that previously unaired excerpt. There was a women's uprising in Tehran, Iran, in 1979 on March 8th. This is in the immediate aftermath of the overthrow of the Shah and before the formation of the Islamic Republic government. What arguments do you make or what do you make of that uprising? And what does your book say about the extent to which the the next round of revolutionary upheaval in Iran must or will be feminist in character. One chapter of the book looks in depth at the experience of returning ISA members, so folks who were studying in the US, they were active in the Iranian Students Association for many years, and then they went home back to Iran to join the revolution in 1978-79. And I look in particular at the experiences of women who returned to join the revolution and found all too suddenly, all too quickly, that the revolution was not going in the direction that they had hoped, that the revolution was not moving in a direction of greater freedom and equality for women. And this was a kind of breaking point. This was where a lot of the, um, the unity 
and these organizations started to fragment within the Iranian left. And the event that I focus on is the one that you mentioned, CS, is this um, uprising of tens of thousands of Iranian women on International Women's Day in Tehran in 1979 that happened in reaction to a government statement um, the day before saying that women would no longer be allowed in government offices unless they were wearing the Islamic covering, also known as hijab. So this was the first sign that the government was trying to make hijab mandatory not a voluntary expression of somebody's faith or beliefs, but something that you were going to be forced to wear um, under threat of state um, sanction. So tens of thousands of women poured into the streets. Now, just prior to this, several returning ISA members had been part of organizing meetings and events to mark International Women's Day. This was a practice that they had as leftists that they had been doing in the United States for many years. They would hold events on International Women's Day, right? This is the kind of socialist women's holiday, right? So they were used to this practice and they were already organizing meetings and events for March 8th back in Iran in this kind of moment of uh, post-revolutionary freedom that everyone was experiencing. <clears throat> and it just so happened that the government made this announcement about mandatory hijab just on the eve of March 8th. So these smaller meetings and rallies that uh, women activists were organizing suddenly turned into sites of mass mobilization far beyond what the organizers had anticipated or expected. Nobody wanted to sit in a, in a room and listen to speakers. They wanted to flood into the streets, and so they did. And what ensued were several days of marches, sit-ins, rallies, where tens of thousands of women tried to intervene in the direction that their society was going in. It was their public um, effort to say, this is not what we were fighting for. And you can, you can um, see it in many of the chants and manifestos that I analyze in the book. Um, you know, they, they chanted things like, we didn't make a revolution to go backwards. And they chanted um, that freedom isn't Eastern or Western, it's universal. So in other words, they were trying to respond to accusations that women's rights or feminism, a word that they didn't even dare use, that these were sort of Western concepts and that any woman who resisted wearing hijab was somehow westernized, corrupted, inauthentic, and maybe even a kind of um, weak point that the imperialists could exploit to undermine the revolution. So this women's uprising was attacked. It was attacked by um, Islamists and vigilantes, but it was also not supported by liberals or by other leftists. Um, there was an incredibly um, devastating consensus really across the political spectrum that issues of women's equality, of gender and sexual equality were not important. They were secondary or frivolous or divisive. This was not the time. The revolution was still in danger. We needed unity. And these women were really um, attacked and their movement was suppressed. And so what I look at in the chapter was just how um, damaging that was to uh, the revolution as a whole, because those women who flooded the streets in early March of 79 rightly understood that the notion of mandatory hijab in government offices was simply the first sign of an authoritarian turn that would become so broad as to not only make hijab mandatory in all public spaces, but also to ban political parties, to censor the press, to shut down all rallies, um, and to really turn Iran into another kind of authoritarian dictatorship, right? And to really dash the hopes of freedom that um, so many revolutionaries, including returning ISA members, had had. Um, so I wanted to kind of um, go back and, and really show that an, there was another alternative, you know, that the Iranian revolution could have gone in this other direction, right? It wasn't inevitable that we ended up with a theocratic dictatorship. There were other possibilities. There were other visions of freedom that included bodily autonomy, that included um, democratic rights, and that included gender and sexual equality, not as something to be postponed to a distant future, but as urgent demands 
um, as a kind of core content of what um, the new society um, should should be about, right? Um, those those hopes and dreams, those other alternatives were dashed at the time. And in the book, of course, I didn't know, I finished the book well in advance of the current uprising in Iran, which only began in September of 2022. I couldn't have imagined that, you know, these arguments I was making based on a historical investigation would suddenly be coming to life. You know, I, I was sort of joking, you know, thank goodness nobody waited around for my book. Um, you know, Iranians have their lived experience of 44 years of, uh, you know, the society that this revolution produced. Um, and when this new revolutionary uprising broke out, it was exactly in response to gender and sexual oppression. It was exactly in response to mandatory hijab and the state killing of a young Kurdish woman for supposedly not wearing her hijab correctly. And so it was ab it's absolutely incredible for me to watch these events unfold and to see that not only um, is there a new revolutionary uprising in Iran, you know, a, a kind of third Iranian revolution. If we have we have a constitutional revolution in 1906, we have the revolution of 1979, and now we have another revolution um, unfolding that begins with gender and sexual freedom and equality, not as secondary issues, but as the primary catalysts for all of the other grievances of the society. Um, and so it's incredibly inspiring um, and hopeful, despite high degrees of state repression, to see the, um, the fact that this history of what happened in 1979 has not just haunted people in the sense of living under a dictatorship all these years, but has also brought powerful lessons about the fact that um, women's equality, gender and sexual equality, bodily autonomy um, have to be at the center of our visions of freedom. Manishe Moradian teaches in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College. Her book is This Flame Within, Iranian Revolutionaries in the United States. And that wraps up today's look at women's history, powered by interviews done over the course of 20 years of Against the Grain. This is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>